Hello everybody, I'm Dwayne Mancini and welcome to another episode of MedTech Money brought to you by Project MedTech. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review and you can always visit our website www.projectmedtech.com or follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. Project MedTech is an interview-style podcast on the MedTech industry where guests share stories, advice, pitfalls, trends, and innovations. In this episode, our host Giovanni Loricella and our guest Dan Lamaitri at Blue Wind Medical discuss the importance of setting milestones so your investors could keep score, Blue Wind's connect- connection to Rainbow Medical, when hiring team members, what does he look for? What they are working on at Blue Wind Medical? The importance of spending time with patients? How he raised the Series A and Series B? How they chose the strategic they wanted to work with? Why he wants to take his company public and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Dan LaMaitre. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Dan, thank you very much for being here with us today. This is the MedTech Money podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And very excited about this one. We've we've tossed out this word before with some other entrepreneurs, but serial or legendary entrepreneurs like yourself, I'm very honored to have you on today to, to learn about your story and fundamentally covering the capital raise for the company of which you are now chairman and CEO of. Blue Wind Medical for 64 million Series B. So that's the major focus, but we're going to talk about molecular topics like why Utah and your history of selling off companies in the past and just in general, how you approach fundraising for the companies that you've been a part of or associated with, especially Blue Wind, and even dabble into the uh, the background of the association of Blue Wind Medical and Rainbow Medical out of Israel, which I think could be interesting. So the reason why we're here is I've talked to medtech entrepreneurs like yourself, as well as investors from around the world. And what I've discovered is that there's no silver bullet or specific formula or even magic, if you want to call it that, about how to raise or invest capital in medtech. And so my goal here is to extract insights to, quote unquote, demystify this process so we can help medtech innovators benefit from this information. And listening in from what we've heard and got feedback from and amazing followers and listeners of this podcast. They're medtech entrepreneurs as well as investors. And what I wanted to do is share your stories and advice with what I imagine is that first time founder or CEO and literally has no clue of what lies ahead of them on this journey of raising capital. And so I thought the best place to start is learning from hyper experienced professionals like yourself. So once again, to wrap up, we're going to talk about your Series B, we're going to talk about Utah, we're going to talk about your background and some other cool connecting points, even more so raising capital from a corporate strategic, which would be interesting. But before we get into your background and also Blue Wind, I want to kick off and warm up the conversation with a few open-ended questions just to hear your philosophy about some stuff. So the first one is, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup? Why or why not? Or would you add anything after all your experience? Okay. First off, Giovanni, I have to thank you. Uh, this is important stuff. I, I, I know there's an old adage that says strategy without funding is hallucination. But I can tell you that you can't run a company 
unless you have the visibility for funding and project med tech and these kind of, of this work that will allow us to help share lessons learned, hopefully will allow other folks in this industry to get the capital that's required uh, to make the right kinds of decisions. So anyway, thank you. Thank you for that. Absolutely. So, yeah. And so uh, remind me what your first question was again. The, the people and money, are oh, they the lifeblood of a med tech startup? Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because um, I, uh, yeah, I've been involved in a, in a lot of things and I, I will tell you, it starts with first off identifying an unmet medical need and then figuring out if you have a product that can address that. Once you have those two, then you have to go out and recruit the team uh, in order to do that. And, and when you do that, when you're trying to convince people to change their lives, uh, as, as you know, there's, there's uh, a finite number of people in medical technology. Fortunately, we all get recycled, uh, some of us more than others. Uh, but at the end of the day, you're not recruiting um, neophytes off the street. You need people who've, who've done this, who understand what's required and if you're going to go out and try to convince people to change your lives, maybe even to move to Utah, uh, you've got to be able to have the funding to create, create that kind of visibility. So ultimately, it's those four ingredients. It's the unmet medical need. It's a product that addresses that. It's the people that can make it happen. But unless you have that funding part of it right, it's, uh, it's, it's a very, very difficult task to, to pull off. And it leads me into my next question. Um, and I know that you had a robust background, so we'll get into it when we get to your story. But, you know, from selling off companies, from raising capital for companies, from building teams, for successfully commercializing products, for successfully developing products, this regulated ecosystem and environment and industry that we all play in, med tech, medical devices, do you believe in luck and how much does luck play into the success of med tech? <laughs> oh, luck. Uh, well, as, as anybody who's been in the business long enough will tell you, there's always, um, there's always the benefit of having luck on your side. But what it really comes down to is sort of what I intimated at the very beginning is sometimes, uh, you know, you can really mistaken uh, a good jockey um, for just a terrific horse. And it's and the vice and vice versa. You've got to be on the right horse, and 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 you can have all kinds of uh, hubris about about past successes. And sometimes you just look at it and you you know what? I was fortunate enough to be on the right horse, and I I don't care how good you are. It's hard sometimes if you don't have that uh, to make things happen. I I like to refer to it, Giovanni, as pushing a rock up a hill. When you're pushing a rock up a hill, you can you do it? Yeah. Uh, is it as much fun? No. Uh, is it fraught with peril? Yes. And so, uh, so distinguishing between uh, that right horse is really critical. Again, getting back to my, my first point is you got to have a product that can make a difference. If you have a product that can make a difference, that's the good horse. And I think that good horse um, will far outweigh the benefit of, of luck. 
Now, have I been lucky? I can guarantee you I've been lucky to be involved in some, some things where I've learned more, more lessons is when I've been, when I failed. Uh, and I can tell you that's painful when you have to let people go, when you disappoint investors, that stuff's painful, but you learn a heck of a lot from those lessons. And hopefully the next time a good horse comes along, you get a better ride because of those lessons. Love that. And the story that we're going to dig into and unravel is this raising of Series B for $64 million for your company, Blue and Medical. Um, once again, leaning on your historical experience of your career, and obviously this most recent round, you've looked investors in the eyes, in the face, stood in front of them, pitched yourself, understood their feedback on various projects you were involved in. From your perspective, at least as an entrepreneur, what is the most investable skill set or characteristic of a med tech entrepreneur? Or, or from your experience, again, when you've been invested in to represent a company and raise that capital from that investor, what is one of the things that you believe investors saw in you or, or look for when they do make that investment in you? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And why I, I don't know if you know in particular that my uh, early days in uh, MedTech was as a Wall Street analyst. And I learned a long, long time ago that it's always about setting expectations, realistic expectations. And if you're going to go out and try to raise money and you're going to tell people a story, you have to set expectations. You have to set demonstrable milestones so that they have a way to keep score. And I, you know, I have to tell you when, um, when I uh, initially joined Blue In, I was, I came on as the executive chair. And I did that for a reason, Giovanni. I, I did not want to do anything else other than to see if I could get the company funded because without funding, nothing else was going to happen. I spent the first year as executive chair trying to raise money. At that time, all I could tell people is what we were going to do because all we had done was a 36-patient pilot study. Uh, we didn't have our IDE approved. We hadn't started... Um, uh, recruiting patients in the in our pivotal study, but you go out and you tell that story and you tell people why you think you have some inclination that you have a good product that can address an unmet medical need, and then you go out and execute. And you know, I I have to tell you, we had road warriors who allowed us to continue to recruit our in our pivotal study during COVID. Before, uh, uh, before there were vaccines, before they even had all the, the, the protective equipment they, they needed, we were, we were really fortunate to have people who truly believed in our product. And we got that study enrolled during COVID. As, as you know, there are a lot of things that got stopped during COVID. Um, and so it's always about telling people what you expect to do and then being able to put some points on the board. And I have to tell you, when it got to the Series B, it was so much easier because we were able to go back and tell folks, this is what we told you we were gonna do, and this is what we've done. So bottom line is, it's all about setting expectations and then executing on those expectations. 
And so you've talked about a lot of things in terms of being an entrepreneur thus far and, and how the trials and tribulations of failing versus success. So after having done it and built this career, if you knew what you know now about being a med tech entrepreneur, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Or, or could you even imagine yourself doing something differently at this point? Uh, the simple answer is yes, but I would have moved over to the operations side uh, sooner in my career. I, I liked being a Wall Street analyst. I think people thought I was pretty good at it. Uh, but to be very frank with you, Giovanni, when I used to go visit medical device companies and you'd sit in their lobby and you'd look up at the mission statements and the values, in my uh, cynical Wall Street perspective, I just thought that was feel-good gobbledygook. Um, and it was nice, you know, you know, we have a mission and we're patient-oriented. And, uh, and then I left the street in uh, 2005 and, and went over to the operations side. And I have to tell you, I had the, I had the good fortune, as you know, of being um, part of Core Valve. And Core Valve was right involved right at the very beginning of the launch of uh, transaortic valve replacement. And you, you sit there and you're in, a, you're in a cath lab watching a patient who had been told that they weren't a candidate for a traditional aortic valve replacement. And you knew from the medical literature that within a year, half those patients would be dead. And you're in the cath lab, and first off, they're awake because it's, it's done under local anesthesia. And you watch your device starting to be deployed. And all of a sudden, you're, you're looking at the fact that literally the patient is turning pink on the table because all that amazingly good oxygenated blood that was stuck in their left ventricle is now um, coming out through their aortic valve because your valve is already starting to work. That's, that's game changing. And I, I have to tell you when, when I say I, my only regret is not moving to the operations side earlier, there's nothing, nothing like that feeling like you are making a difference for patients. And you know today, TAVR is a $5 billion market. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of patients' lives have been saved uh, between what uh, Edwards and Medtronic have now done in, in that marketplace. And it's, there's no, uh, there's no amount of, um, of remuneration uh, that could make up for the benefit you have of feeling very good about yourself because you know you've made a huge difference for patients. And so that's my only regret. I just, uh, I've, I was on Wall Street for 28 years. I probably, uh, I probably could have left that uh, a decade earlier and had a and had a lot more gratification for the benefit that we could have provided for patients. And that leads me into my next question, which, based on your perspective, I'll let you run with it and take it however you wish. This notion of glamour and being a med tech CEO, right? And I, and I put med tech in parentheses because some people who think about CEO, they're at the helm. 
it's it's glamorous they're driving around in sports cars or fancy cars making all this money rolexes whatever it may be but it's just like this glamored position and then if you take away the parentheses of med tech ceo especially of a med tech startup is it glamorous being a med tech ceo <laughs> oh giovanni i uh if you knew my lifestyle i don't i don't think uh I don't think anybody would say that I'm a, I'm a glamorous guy. I think I'm driving a 2010 FJ Cruiser. So, uh, uh, so that's, um, that's my, of course, that is a Utah sports car, right? Uh, but, uh, uh, but, but I'll tell you where the, the glamour comes from. And, uh, and, and it really comes from the fact that if you do this job the right way, um, you're not only gonna help patients, uh, you're gonna you're gonna help your team members. And I once uh, I once had a, a guy who had worked for me for nine years come in. We were gonna go through a little transition. And he came in and, and shook my hand, and I thought he was just gonna thank me for some of the financial success we had. But he said, "I just want to thank you for making me a better person." And I got to tell you, Giovanni, if they could only uh, if they could only put like one line on my gravestone that I helped people be better people, um, I, that would be uh, that'd be a win for me. That's the glamorous part of this business for me. It's it's building teams, building teams that can execute so you can help patients. And if you all have fun and you make each other better. That's that's the glamour. Uh, there's a lot of parts of uh, this job that are not glamorous in the sense of you're 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 flying private or you're you're wearing your W two on your. Uh, you see, I'm wearing an Apple Watch. That's how glamorous my uh, my watch is. Uh, but <laughs> at the end of the day, the glamour really comes from the benefits, the psychic benefits you get from helping patients building teams, executing, having fun, and making sure that um, you try to help each other be better people. I, I love that. I love that. Well, circling back to the to the business side, and I really do love the, the spiritual psychological stuff there. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, you are the CEO of Blue Wind Medical. What does the name of your company mean? Blue Wind, one word, medical. Why that name? You know, uh, the, uh, uh, some of this is just folklore, uh, but let me tell you where I, I think the name came from, because remember, uh, Blue Wind was created by an Israeli incubator, Rainbow Medical. Uh, they had some amazing technical people early on who had decided that um, they could um, uh, create some really interesting technology. Yossi Gross was uh, the brains behind a, a lot of that. Rainbow Medical, I think, started eventually started 12 uh, different companies under this medical incubator uh, framework. Uh, the problem uh, with that framework is if you, you know, it would have been great if they'd come up with 12 ideas and could have continued to monetize that so that they could feed the pipeline and say, okay, now we're going to take the proceeds from, from that idea and come up with another one. But when you can't do that, 
and you you create 12 companies, then you have 12 people sitting around, uh, 12 kids sitting around the dining room table and you're having to try to figure out who you're going to send to college and who's going to have to go to a good technical school. And so inevitably, I think that the issue with those the incubators is if you're counting on exits and they don't happen, then you have to start to uh, to somehow spin your kids off. And so when they had recruited me uh, to be the executive chair of Blue Wind, part of the uh, thought process was, could, uh, could we fund it such that we could extract it from Rainbow? Now, Rainbow, as you know, has many, many colors. Uh, blue Wind, uh, the, the color blue, was thought to be the most calming color in the rainbow. And nobody really understands the mechanism of action of neuromodulation to treat urge incontinence. But what we believe is that for some reason, your bladder is sending inappropriate signals to your brain that you have to avoid when your bladder isn't full. And whether we're blocking them or calming those signals, the thought was there, there is some calming effect and hence the color blue for, uh, for blue wind. The wind part of it is an acronym. It stands for wireless implantable neuromodulation device. So that's where the name came from. Uh, again, I can't swear that uh, there was all of that thought process uh, back in 2010 when we were founded, uh, but that's how it's been passed down through company folklore. So thank you for that. And I love asking those questions because sometimes the, the stories are just so short and they're just like, ah, I was having a cup of coffee and I looked at a sign. And other yep. times it's it's something a little bit more storytelling like that, which I love. And I before we get into your background, I just I want to give a few shouts out. I have followed Blue Wind for years at this point. And I never knew that story, which I'm really glad I finally understand Blue Wind. Um, and also wanted to thank my friend Yuval Mendelbaum for putting us together so that we can do this podcast. So Yuval, I met him when he was at Rainbow. Now he's running a very cool company. Uh, he's the CEO of Discure. So I wanted to give a shout out to Yuval. Yuval, thank you very much for making this happen. Also, um, with regards to Rainbow, and we'll touch a little bit more on that, but you covered it pretty strongly just now. Yossi's an Israeli genius when it comes to medical device. I call him the godfather of Israel for medical devices. And his son, uh, Amir Gross, I know him very well, is a mentor of mine, a very close friend of mine and also a very successful entrepreneur selling two heart valve companies, one to the, to the West over in uh, Edwards and now one over to the East in Venus MedTech. So congratulations on that, Amir. Anyway, um, the man behind this very cool voice telling this amazing story thus far and sitting right in front of me right now. So I'm very grateful to be in front of you, Dan. Dan Lemaitre, the CEO and executive chairman for Blue Wind Medical. Who are you? Where are you from? You alluded to it from Wall Street, et cetera, but how did you start your life? Meaning maybe where were you born? And just tell us about who you are as a human being, how you built your career, and then ultimately how you ended up as being executive chairman and CEO of Blue and Medical. And when we get there, we'll just talk about the cool, sexy tech that you are actually developing and what you're doing at Blue and Medical. And then we'll get into the some fun stuff. Oh my God, Giovanni, I swear to God, uh, I can't tell you how much I love that question. It's actually how I start to recruit people. Because <laughs> I always tell folks, I know what people are. I can read CVs. So, you know, somebody wants to tell me what they are. Um, I can tell that. I always want to know who they are and why they are who they are. 
because as my good friend John Brown from Stryker uh, used to say, you look for three things. You look for smart people. You look for hardworking people. And then you look for people who get along with other people because if they don't have the last thing, the first two don't matter. And, uh, and trying to figure out who someone is and more importantly, why they are that is, is incredible. And when you ask that kind of open-ended question, you wouldn't believe the things that people tell you. Stuff you could never ask, by the way, in, in today's uh, interviewing guidelines, uh, but they're gems of insight that you get from that kind of question. So uh, the simple answer is, I am a kid who, uh, who got really lucky and beat the odds, uh, pure and simple. I, uh, I grew up in a family where nobody had ever gone to college. I, was, um, I had a good enough memory that even though I never ever worked um, in high school, studied, I could stay in advanced placement classes because I could, uh, I was unfortunately the, the bottom end of the curve, uh, but I just assumed I'd go to college because all my friends were going to college. Uh, when I realized that um, uh, things like um, uh, grades and, um, and class ranking counted, it was a little late, uh, but I, uh, I started studying my senior year in high school. And it was like a drug, Giovanni. I started to get attention for, uh, for good things instead of fooling around. And, uh, and I have to tell you, it has fed me ever since. I, I love uh, having people think that I'm, I'm crushing it. And so uh, <laughs> all, all, my, all my poor friends who uh, studied uh, throughout high school uh, burned out frankly, a lot of them because they had worked so hard. And I just, I got out of high school and I just, I, I was fresh, uh, fresh legs because I had never, uh, never had the benefit of that kind of uh, uh, success. And so, you know, I'm, I'm driven um, by the fact that, that I, I do uh, like attention. It's a lot more uh, fulfilling to get it for doing positive things. And, uh, and when I, you know, when I think back, if I hadn't grown up in a little town like Woodbury, Connecticut, if I hadn't uh, had uh, the benefit of some friends who were going to college, whose parents helped me uh, in the college application process, yeah, there, there's just been so many turning points in my life that you, you mentioned luck before. And I, I got to tell you, just uh, you do have to recognize sometimes when somebody taps you on the shoulder and, and says, go that way. And I, I had a, it was interesting in, in graduate school, I had a professor named Bill Fickthorne, who was a very serious man and called everybody Mr. And he, uh, one day in class, he said, Mr. Lemaitre, I'd like to see you after class. And of course, given what I just told you about my early days of studying, I assumed I was in trouble. Uh, but he said to me, uh, after I had gone up, he said, um, just wondering if you ever thought you'd uh, like to be an investment analyst. And I had to allow, I had no clue what an investment analyst did. Nobody in my family ever had stocks. And so after um, being kind enough to spend some time with me, 
uh, about what it uh, required, he said, you should know, I think you'd be a very good investment analyst. National Citibank in Cleveland is coming to interview for to look for analysts to start in their trust department. I think you ought to talk to them. I, I got to tell you, uh, I, I went to the interview. I got the job. It, by the way, it was my lowest paying job offer, um, but it sounded like something that I really wanted to, to do. And, uh, and it, you know, it launched me on a, on a career that if it weren't for somebody sitting there and watching me in his finance class and thinking that's somebody who might be very good at this, uh, I, you know, I wouldn't have done it. And so I've been really, really lucky in the sense that I did have some very positive influences uh, in my life that uh, allowed me to, to um, beat what otherwise could have been a very different path for me. I love that. And, and obviously, after having started in that career, I mean, being an executive in med tech, and, and I, I will ask a question just because you, you talked about an investment analyst. How did you actually, you fell into being an investment analyst. How did you end up falling into the med tech industry then? At least how did you enter it? So this is a, a great story because my first day at National City Bank in Cleveland, they had their Monday morning uh, meeting. And what I've realized is that uh, that you really wanted to be in, in something that people couldn't fake. Because uh, in the Monday morning meeting, I watched the automobile analyst literally get kicked out of the room and told to go do more research because portfolio managers drive cars and they had lots of opinions about uh, Ford versus Chrysler. I watched the retail analyst literally get kicked out of the room because she was recommending Caldor, I believe, over Sears and, uh, and told to go do more research because uh, the portfolio manager shopped. And I sat there thinking, you really wanna do something that uh, just presence alone or opinion wouldn't uh, carry the day. And so I asked if I could do technology and healthcare because they were the most uh, 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 domain experience required. And with healthcare, I figured if a portfolio manager was using my product over the weekend, he might not be there on Monday morning to second guess me. And so I literally made a concerted decision to try to do tough stuff that required domain experience because I, I believe it was George Kirby who, from uh, Capital Guardian, who founded Capital Guardian, who said the most dangerous thing in the investment business is the articulate incompetent. <laughs> Think about that. Yeah. It's, it's it's presence and it's people who can shout you down and and if you have domain experience, you can't be shout shouted down just by somebody who might be that articulate and competent. I I love that again. So you'll probably hear me say that ten more thousand times on this podcast with you. Moving forward on that, now we know that you've been on Wall Street forever. You were in med tech, which then I believe somewhat along maybe a hop, skip and a jump led you to Medtronic as being an executive there. And then after that, it was Core Valve. And then you've been either an executive chair, a board member, or a CEO ever since. And now you're leading Blue Wind, which is we're going to jump into right now. So if you were on a loudspeaker um, and the whole entire world is listening, of course, they're listening because it's the MedTech Money podcast. So everyone in the world is listening right now. <laughs> uh, 
Tell them what Blue Wind Medical is. What, what are you guys developing? What is the technology? Yeah. So the first off, the affliction that we're addressing is overactive bladder. And I have to tell you, Giovanni, when when I did get a call from Effie Cohen and Yossi Gross about what I consider uh, joining Blue Wind as executive chairman, and they said it was overactive bladder, it wasn't something that I was necessarily seeking out because a lot of what I had done in the past was in cardiovascular medicine. And in cardiovascular medicine, it's a fairly binary outcome, life, death. And if more of your patients uh, were alive at the end of a study than the control arm, you got approval. It wasn't much harder than that. Overactive bladder is not an affliction that kills anyone. What it destroys is somebody's life. And so I had told them that I'd have to think about it. And I started to do my research and reached out to uh, people who were in the industry, to urologists, to urogynecologists. And I have to tell you, it won't, wouldn't take anybody very long to really appreciate what a profound impact this affliction has on people's lives. We, uh, we have patient testimonials that come over the transom that we, we're not requesting, but when you're changing people's lives, there's, uh, there's, there's so many comorbidities associated with overactive bladder. Some of them you would probably guess are pretty obvious. When you don't leave the house, chances are your, your, uh, your, your, your physical activity levels are, aren't what they should be. So you gain weight, you gain weight. There's all kinds of issues with diabetes, cardiovascular problems. We had one woman in our study tell one of our field clinical specialists that her biggest problem right now is she needs a new wardrobe because her clothes don't fit her anymore. She started to uh, exercise. She started to leave the house and, and you sit there and you, you just are amazed that you could have that kind of impact. There's psychological issues associated with this. The rates of depression and suicide for people who suffer from overactive bladder are well above uh, norms. You have sexual intimacy issues. You can't, you can't share a bed with your partner because of, because of overactive bladder. You get up in the middle of the night uh, an awful lot of times and, uh, and as a consequence, you have falls. And there's um, just the, the rate of nightfalls and, and particularly in elderly patients, that's, that's significant. And so when you really spent the time to understand the myriad ways that this disease manifests for patients, it's, it's not something where you could be cavalier about it. And there are people who are cavalier about it. They're like, well, what's the big deal? Wear a diaper, wear a pad, you're cured, you're not. Uh, I will tell you that if you look at the, the patients out there, particularly the, the moderate to zero, severe patients, they're not only leaking four, five, six times a day, they have large leaks. And, and large leaks, that's, that's the thing where they've got an extra set of clothing in their, uh, they've got an extra set of clothing in their car, they're worried, they won't go out sometimes, they're sitting in a, anytime they're in a public setting, they're looking around to where the restroom is, they're in the back of the room. It's, it has an incredible impact on people's lives. And so that was really uh, the, the 
thing that drove me to thinking that there's more here uh, than I thought. And then I, in talking to some of my friends who have been in the industry, I realized that the, the clinical study itself is really about execution because it requires you to get exquisite baseline data on your patients so you actually know what they were before the therapy. It requires exquisite follow-up to make sure that as you have pre-described follow-ups and we had it at one month, three months, six months, nine months, and 12 months, that in all of those follow-ups, we were doing everything we could to make sure the therapy was optimized uh, for the patient. And so it really came down to understanding that you're really driving the bus. If you can get exquisite baseline data, do everything you can to optimize that patient, uh, you were going to have a positive impact on the, on the study. And so that's what got me, uh, that's what got me excited. I will tell you, I was just at the uh, AUGS meeting down in Austin, Texas, and, and still to this day, there are people who will debate whether or not overactive bladder is a debilitating, irreversible disease. And it just, when you talk to patients and you're having a conversation about whether overactive bladder is debilitating, it's, it's, it's surreal. And I, I defy these folks to just talk to patients, spend a little time with patients and get a sense of what this affliction actually uh, does to their lives. And so as, you know, as I said earlier, nobody dies from overactive bladder, which by the way, creates a very high hurdle bar for uh, side of uh, any kind of uh, adverse events because the tolerance for adverse events is pretty low when there's uh, no mortality associated with the affliction. Nobody dies from this, but if you treat them and treat them successfully, you give them their lives back. And I know that that may sound grandiose, but I'm telling you, Giovanni, you talk to these patients, they're getting their lives back. And with all that, you're now creating or running the company that's creating a solution for these patients to get their lives back. And I want to jump right into how you're able to accomplish that for these patients, which going back to our previous questions, raising that capital to be able to give the fuel to the people to be able to properly and smartly and efficiently execute on the work that will ultimately help these patients. So the press release came out not all that long ago you helped raise and you raised 64 million in a series B for Blue Wind. Um, you're an amazing storyteller. So I'm gonna ask some open-ended multiple questions and a single question and just let you run. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned that you joined Blue Wind originally as the executive chair to help raise that series A. This is series B. You're up and coming, I believe on that series B is for that commercialization of the organization, right? So, and I've covered a lot on this podcast series about the naming of rounds and they're kind of getting skewed from the old classical words of, of let's just even use class three medical devices, for example, where, you know, class, oh, I'm sorry, series A got you through design freeze, maybe a first in man. Series B was really for clinical trials. Series D, C typically stood for commercialization, that kind of thing. Um, now you're at a 64 million series B 
utilizing that to go commercialize the organization. It's a large series B um, for a neuromodulation device for commercial. It's a little, it, it's, it's an early series in order for commercial. What was that secret sauce of you coming on as executive chair to land the series A, ultimately land a huge series B and we don't know the future, but ultimately start commercializing the organization before getting to that quote unquote series C that stands for commercialization. How did you do that? That's yeah. number one. And I'll let you run with that. Um, in the press release, it also talks about how I believe it was either led or even taken on by um, a strategic contact public information. Yeah. Just the, just the, the nuances of your experience throughout your career looking investors in the eye, institutional investors who have a 10 year horizon to return the money to LPs versus the corporate strategics who might be investing off the balance sheet with an evergreen fund that don't have those same constraints as the institutional investors. Do they act differently when you are raising capital from either of those styles? I want you just to tell that story of you coming on as executive chair, how you went about raising series A for what purposes? And then what did you do to ultimately get Convitec involved as a corporate strategic to land a $64 million series B? Tell yeah. that. Well, uh, again, there's a, a lot in that, but I'm a linear thinker. So let me do this on a linear basis. The series A required me to convince investors that we weren't a science project. Science projects are hard to fund. Uh, and if, uh, if people were looking for some sense that there was a high probability of success, we were very fortunate that people understood the basic mechanism of action for what we do. In fact, the Chinese figured out a long, long time ago that if you stick a needle in somebody's ankle during acupuncture, it has an impact on the bladder. There's actually a procedure um, that's approved that's been around for more than a decade called percutaneous tibial nerve stimulation, where you go to a physician's office every week for 12 straight weeks, they stick a needle in your ankle for 30 minutes, they stimulate that ankle, it has an impact on the bladder. Because again, whether it's disrupting or blocking these inappropriate signals from the bladder to the brain, that worked. The problem is it didn't work for patients because nobody can go to the physician's office for 12 straight weeks and then monthly thereafter or every two weeks thereafter for touch-ups. And so it had really not penetrated the market. And the genius of Yossi Gross was to be able to take that uh, um, evidence that's stimulating and, and encapsulate that into a form factor that works for patients. So we have a very simple implant that's done under direct vis visualization. It is, um, it is put over the tibial bundle and then sutured in place. So we've never had a migration. We've never had a fracture. We close that up. Um, it's a relatively straightforward procedure. In fact, in our pivotal study, 100% procedure success rate. We opened a patient up, they got an implant. You close it up, you let things settle down for a few weeks. The device is then powered by a wearable accessory that the patient wears typically for 30 minutes a day. They use it when they want it, where they want it, 
and frankly, how much they, they want it. Because there's a built-in feedback mechanism called leaking. If you're leaking, you might want to use it more often than, than not. We also, because the battery is outside the device in the wearable unit, if it requires more energy or more time, we don't care. We don't have an implantable battery. We're worried about longevity. Uh, our implant is designed to last at least a decade. Our wearable battery, it can be recharged every, every night. And so as a consequence, the, the, the magic sauce in, the, in, the, in raising the money for the, triple, for the Series A round was first off to convince people that we weren't trying to, to, uh, to run a science project. We knew this kind of therapy worked. We just believe we had a form factor that was going to work for patients and work for physicians. And all I can tell you, because obviously we haven't seen the data yet, uh, we'll have the data pretty soon, by the way, uh, uh, but we haven't seen the data yet. But what I can tell you is anecdotally, a couple of things happen. First off, we have a high rate of responders at one month. We know that we can optimize the therapy for the partial or the non-responders because of our ability to not worry about battery depletion. So if a patient needs more energy, we give them more energy uh, with, uh, with frequency, with pulse width, with uh, changing the polarity, with amplitude. There's a lot of things that we can do. And we see that at the three-month mark when we again have another shot on goal to optimize the therapy. And so at the end of the day, We'll, we'll see where our data comes out, but I believe we have a form factor that works for the physicians because it's very straightforward implantation process. It works for patients because they use the product where, when, and how much they, they need to, to use it. And we'll see where the data came out, comes out. But at the end of the day, uh, that was the basis by which we were able to, to raise the Series A. Now the Series A was led by a, a private um, family foundation, in, and so as I started to think about the Series B, and eventually with the hope of of taking Blue in public, which is our plan, we knew we needed some validation, uh, because even though the the private uh, investors are pretty savvy, they don't have the same domain experience as some of your traditional med tech investors. And we thought that having a strategic in the round would be helpful. I have to tell you that, uh, as you could imagine, there's a, there's a usual suspect list of people who might be interested in our technology. And we talked to an awful lot of them. There were some of them who were very quizzical about why would we wanna help you get to an IPO because frankly, all the stuff that you're doing, like building out your commercial footprint would be a redundancy for us because we have sales forces and we have field clinical people. And so they, uh, so there was some reticence as you can imagine from some of the traditional players in urology uh, to help fund our path and by the way, for clarity on that, when you say the players and the people that you're alluding to right now, you're talking about the corporate strategics who could have. Exactly right. Yeah. I'm sorry if, if that yeah. was 
not Claire, but from some of the strategics who would sit there and say, yeah, you're, you're going to use this money to build out a commercial footprint that I would consider a redundancy. Along comes Convitech, and Convitech, as you may know, has a, uh, a fairly new CEO, Kareem Batar, who was recruited um, by their board a few years ago to try to instill technology into this company to help them be able to help more patients and accelerate their growth. And under Kareem Batar's leadership, uh, their businesses were charged with doing some white space analysis and finding places where they could make a difference. Convitec, on their own, had identified tibial nerve stimulation as an area that looked intriguing, and on their own, had come to the conclusion that Blue Wind had, uh, had one of the best form factors uh, out there. And so they approached us during the same time that I was looking for a strategic. And the beauty of Convitec as a partner is they don't have a sales force that does this. They don't have field clinical people who cover cases. And so everything that we're doing right now uh, to build out our commercial footprint and anticipation of launch is not a redundancy for Convitec. So they're very happy to support this. They, uh, they did uh, lead, the, lead the round, uh, but um, at some point, they know perfectly well that plan A for Blue Wind is in fact to go public um, because I believe that would be the mechanism by which we could help the most patients uh, and be able to have the wherewithal uh, to really be able to uh, support and build the infrastructure to do that. It's not to say that Convitec or frankly any other strategic may uh, may not try to step in front of that process. As you know, when you uh, go public, typically uh, uh, strategics uh, think about stepping in front of that IPO. And, um, and, but as we've made it clear to Convitec, who is a great partner for us right now, they, they understand that while that is a possibility, plan A is to take uh, Blue Wind public. And you mentioned that Convitec led the round, whether you can or not, just to give some context to it, the others who participated in the round, were they family offices, were they institutional, traditional venture capitalists, just to kind of give the dynamics of who participated in this large round of 64? Yes. Giovanni, I'm, I'm guilty of one thing um, for sure, probably a lot more, but one thing for sure. Uh, hang on. Uh, the, um, I, I try to tell everybody everything all the time. It, it keeps you off the rocks. And so uh, in the spirit of full candor, we had identified Convitec as our strategic partner. Um, our current investors were gonna do their, their pro forma for the round. Uh, but I had done a lot of work to try to bring in a traditional med tech venture group. I had a lead um, for this round and the round was frankly gonna be bigger. It was going to be uh, 95 million. And then on February 24th, um, the world changed a little bit. And uh, as you can imagine, uh, there was, uh, there has been and continues to be lots of concerns about what um, 
what the invasion in the Ukraine would mean, um, the kinds of things that uh, the cascading impact of that on investors, uh, the markets got very skittish. Uh, there were people who were out raising money whose term sheets got pulled. Um, the entire world of public companies were on sale. A lot of folks had portfolio companies that had gone public during the 2021 timeframe that were now significantly underwater. And that lead investor pulled out. And, and of course, um, they, when you do that during the middle of something like that, it would have been hard to try to uh, go out and try to find a new lead. And as a consequence, we just downsized the round. Um, we had tremendous support from Convitech and our current, current investors uh, to, uh, to complete the $64 million round. But um, it was definitely a curveball that uh, I didn't expect. But I think the fact that we, uh, we were still able to raise the money during this time frame, and by the way, there was a step up in valuation from Series A, a significant step up because we had put some points on the board. Uh, but the bottom line is, since we didn't raise as much as I anticipated raising, because I was anticipating that that round would take us through uh, the IPO, at some point we'll be back out in the market. And we'll probably do uh, some type of a crossover round or a top-off round. You never want to do a IPO when you need money, uh, because if investors think you're desperate, they'll just keep their hands in their pockets and and wait you out. Uh, so we'll have more, well, plenty of resources. I think our timing is such that I've I've got a whole bunch of milestones that I think will help inform both a crossover process and eventually uh, the IPO. Uh, but, you know, as you think about where we are right now, uh, there's a bunch of things that we have to do and we have to do them well. Uh, because if you, you know, if you cut corners now, it only comes back and haunts you. And if, you know, if there's one thing that my team is probably tired of hearing me say, there's probably a lot of things that they're tired of hearing me say, uh, but I always instruct folks to make decisions as if we're going to live with the consequences of those decisions for a long, long time, because I've seen the opposite. You know, as you know, I've bought companies, I've sold companies. When you have a company that's just uh, dressing themselves up for an exit, uh, the stuff that you uncover in the due diligence and you're like, you're kidding. You did that. If, if you had spent uh, two, more, two more months in accelerated testing, you could have had a shelf life of three years and instead you have a shelf life of one year. You did that. Uh, it's those kind of um, shortcuts that people do because they're not properly funded. So it was critical to get this round done. We got it done in some pretty, a pretty challenging environment. We got it done at a valuation that uh, reflected the, the risk that our Series A investors took. I think we have a great strategic partner in Convitec. And now it, what, what it's, uh, the onus is on us now to make sure that when we get FDA clearance, that we're in fact in a position uh, to do things uh, the right way. Because the biggest challenge that a lot of companies have is 
how do you prove to the world that you can replicate on a commercial basis what you did in your clinical study? Because as you know, clinical studies tend to be um, very, very controlled. Uh, a lot of times people say, well, it's not the real world. Look at the, you know, you recruited one in 10 patients and it's not a real world study. You cherry picked the patients. Do you know what our, our screening success rate was in our study? It was 60%. It, it, this is about as real world a study as you could get. Uh, we weren't cherry picking patients in any way, shape or form. And, and so, um, so I think we're doing the right kinds of things because we're lucky enough to have that funding. Uh, I think we're recruiting great people. I've, I think uh, year to date, I've already hired 30 people, which is uh, a lot of folks to try to, um, uh, try to not only identify, recruit, and more importantly, to try to make sure that they understand the culture, what you're about, what you expect. And so we're spending a lot of time on making sure that we have the right people and that we're all uh, rowing in the, in the same direction at the same time. I have two more questions that we wanna run through real quickly. One of them is more geography based. The, one, the last one is just more philosophical and mechanical that we'll leave off to for all the entrepreneurs to listen into. I have 10,000 more questions for you based on all your experience, but we, we don't have the time, but this has been fascinating and, and obviously a wealth of knowledge. Um, this is for me, as hopefully as well as the listeners, but you're based in Salt Lake City, Utah right now. Um, Blue Wind Medical is based in Salt Lake City in Utah. We know that this technology was initially ideated, conceptualized, and ultimately spun out of Israel. Yossi Gross, Rainbow Medical, you've mentioned all that. Um, when you think of places to go in the United States, and I have heard rumblings of neurotech, if you will, and neuromodulation, there's stuff happening over in Utah. But when you think of medical device, med tech, and you look at a map, it's now I'll say all of California. I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening in Southern California, but it used to be just Bay, Minnesota, and Boston. Um, those are the majors that most people know about. You know, now we'll include Southern California and say the state of California, Minnesota, and Boston. Of course, there's sub pockets, but those are the majors. Why did you move the company to Salt Lake? And what is happening in this med tech ecosystem in Salt Lake that allowed you to feel comfortable having the resources that you needed to build this company successfully out of Salt Lake? Yeah, it's a great question. And what I will tell you is I've done the California thing. I've done the, Med, the Minneapolis uh, thing. And there is no doubt that the ecosystems in Northern, Southern California, in Minneapolis, and frankly, in Boston uh, are extraordinary. What, um, what I have learned is that Utah is an incredible place to do business. I, when I first moved here full time in 2009, not shortly after joining, I had the privilege of being able to meet with the governor, uh, Governor Gary Herbert. And as we got to talking, he stopped me and he said, look, your job is to create jobs. And my job is to stay out of your way. I, I can guarantee you, Giovanni, nobody in California ever told me that. In fact, uh, <laughs> um, uh, quite the opposite. And, and then when you look at what's here, first off, uh, uh, there's, there's an incredible uh, uh, 
talent base that comes out of the University of Utah, out of BYU. So you've got young, bright people. They have programs that actually teach entrepreneurship by marrying up engineers with patent attorneys, with medical people, with marketing people, with finance people. They have these contests that are, that are incredible. You wouldn't believe the uh, technology that comes out of these places, the backgrounds, and then, uh, and then they're, they're very business uh, friendly. The other thing is, it's not hard to recruit people to come here. So uh, do I have as many candidates as I would if we were based in Minneapolis or California? No, but when people come visit us and they look around at the quality of life, when they look at the cost of living, when they look at our tax rate, uh, uh, people understand pretty quickly that this is in fact an awfully nice place to relocate. And I'm, believe me, I'm relocating people from Israel. I'm relocating people from California, from Texas. Uh, it's not hard uh, to do that um, because of all the things that Utah has. And they have the ability to run an airport. I, I, I can't tell you what a luxury that is to have Salt Lake Airport that if, uh, if there's a storm, they, they know how to de-ice planes. If there's clouds in the skies, you don't get stacked up. Uh, there's a lot of direct flights around the, of the world. So we're on the grid. We offer some of the highest quality of life, low cost of living, really bright uh, young uh, people coming out of uh, the universities here. And, uh, and so I've, you know, if, believe me, if I was struggling, recruiting talent, and thinking, I, I just can't do it here. I'd, I'd, I'd be in Orange County in a nanosecond. Um, but it's not the case. This is, uh, this is a great place. And it's a great place for medical technology. Stryker's here. Edwards is here. J&J is, is here. Uh, BD Bard is, uh, is here. And then, you know, you just have, when you have that kind of, uh, of infrastructure that's grown out for, to support all that, it, uh, it really does make a huge difference. So I don't think we're handicapped uh, at all uh, by being in Salt Lake. And in fact, I, the best referendum I, could, I can give you is our ability to recruit and get people to relocate here when we need to. My last question for you before we sign off is, you're at the other end of the spectrum and, and the antithesis of what I imagine the original state of the audience of this podcast being created for. This is supposed to be an educational platform for people who maybe are struggling to raise money for the first time right now, or don't know anything about it and will have to eventually learning from serial entrepreneurs and experienced folk like yourself. So um, I talked to, and we did a podcast earlier this year with Daniel Hawkins, who's another serial entrepreneur. Yeah, sure. um, and one of the things I asked him straight up was just like, Listen, you're Daniel Hawkins, you're Dan Hawkins. Um, you've done this multiple times. People know who you are. When you walk into a room, is having that network and having been there and done that before, do you just see through the, the cloth a lot easier than the person who's never done this before? Um, and he was just like, yes, of course, everything comes with experience. So my, my question for you is if, if you can imagine a bunch of entrepreneurs who have never done this before struggling to do it and raise their 1.25 million Series A or seed round or whatever it may be, um, Talk to those people on this one, but how important is building a network over a career 
when you have to call upon that, when you raise capital, that's part A. Part B is, does it get easier when you've raised capital multiple times where you just simply know the process of, okay, I'll just come back to that VC. They say no right now, but it doesn't mean no forever or whatever it may be. Um, and then thirdly, just wrap it around very objectively. Dan Lemaitre has to go out and raise series C hypothetically. And it's day one of you just stretching in your room and you're like, okay, today's the day I start. Where do I even begin? Like, what does Dan do to go raise a, at least start a round of capital? Talk to that. Yeah. Uh, well, a bunch of questions in there. And it reminds me, your question reminds me a little bit based on where I'm going with my answer on the old joke about your career. Your career starts by someone saying, who is Dan LaMatry? The next phase is get me Dan LaMatry. The third phase is get me a young Dan LaMatry. And the fourth phase is who is Dan LaMatry? And and, and Giovanni, I, I bring that up because I'd like to tell you that uh, that my network uh, that dates back to uh, 1978 is uh, I'm leveraging that every day. The fact is, I, I've sort of um, I've been around a long, long time. There's generations of people who have now come through with, who've never heard of Dan LaMatry. So I can't walk into a room and, and say, oh, they must remember when I was a Wall Street analyst, or they might remember Corval. But there's new people every day. And I, I think it's, it's critical that you can resonate with people rather than just assuming I'm going to go back and, uh, and call all those folks who helped me in the, in the past. That's, that's not the... When you've had the luxury and the ability to be in an industry as long as I have, you know, it's, it's more about what you're doing today um, versus just being able to think that the patina of what you've done in the past or the, the network that you can make the same phone calls and just make it happen. So given that, I think what I would tell you, if it's if what I'm thinking about in terms of going to tell the story for Series A, it's What's going to happen? What's going to change? And so I have a whole, again, I'm pretty linear. I, in my mind, I have a whole bunch of things that are going to happen here that are going to help inform us along the ways. So will I start having uh, conversations with crossover investors? Um, yeah, I will. Uh, I'll start that probably in a few months. One of the first things I'm going to be armed with is the data because I'm gonna have the pivotal study data. We're not gonna be able to share that uh, explicitly because we hope that will be in a late breaking session sometime at a conference in, uh, in 2023, but I'll be able to share enough so people feel like, okay, the, uh, the, the clinical risk has been resolved because here's the data. Then I need to, to, uh, to figure out what the FDA is gonna think about that data. Uh, there's lots of things in that process that inform you along the way, not the least of which is at some point you'll get a deficiency letter uh, from the FDA because inevitably they'll have questions. And then it's a question of being able to say, okay, here's what they want to know. If there's some uh, if there's some showstoppers in there, you'll know it. If there's things that are fairly perfunctory and for which you have the answers, they'll know that too. And so then, of course, you know, the thing we haven't talked about is 
is reimbursement because I have to tell you that you know getting approval without reimbursement is a very uh, pretty fair victory because you need reimbursement. It's not automatic as as you know um, in uh, in medical devices. You probably have to spend more time and energy on reimbursement than anybody would would guess. Uh, but as you get visibility on all those things, the data, the FDA, the FDA's thoughts on your, your product, the kind of questions you get, your visibility for reimbursement, I can see a whole series of milestones coming up that I'll start to engage people and tell them, here's what I'm thinking. When I know this, I'll get back to you. And so at that point, you've got that credibility. And as you get closer to uh, uh, hopefully to marketing clearance, then you'll be able to, uh, to do that. As you know, Giovanni, crossover investors uh, are somewhat of a moving target. You know, there's there's uh, markets where they're, they're okay with an 18-month uh, crossover timeframe. Uh, today, they're with this sort of market, and, and nobody really believing the IPO market is there right now, uh, their timeframes are probably pretty darn short, like three months. And so it will depend on market conditions. It will depend on the kind of information we have. But I will tell you, you always go raise money when you have money. And so even though uh, we closed that round and, and we can feel pretty good about uh, the, the $64 million being in the bank, uh, you know, I've already started the process of trying to make sure that um, we, we have that sort of, of thinking in place about how to set expectations, how to approach people and tell them what you're going to do, and then be able to go back to them and say, okay, we've done that. Here's where we are. Here's the timing on the, on the crossover round. And this is what we expect in terms of being able to uh, eventually do an IPO. Last micro question for your style of, of raising. All this maturity of how you can see things linearly, having been there and done that before. Um, at this point, like you mentioned, there's a bunch of new people in the game, so you can't just depend on your network. Do you have this maturation and tenure, tenured ability to reach out to an investor and say, hey, let me tell you my story real quick? Or do you still heavily lean on creating and crafting this very clean, organized, detailed, visually, aesthetically pleasing slide deck, and then say, take a look at this deck. If you're interested, then let me tell you my verbal story. Or do you have a little bit of the luxury being like, hey, and we just covered this, I know, but is it Dan LaMatria? Let me tell you my story. This is what I plan on doing. I've been there and done that before. Do you really want to see my slide deck? Right. Yeah. Well, it's a mix of that. And, and again, I don't mean to diminish the fact that having earned uh, some of this gray hair you can see on our, our call here is uh, that is earned it's not cosmetic and that does help uh, having having um, done some things in in the past uh, but I but I have to uh, tell you that I I'm gonna come right back to what I said earlier you earn your stripes every day and you better have a you better have a story to tell you better believe that story um, you know it's Getting back to my comment about incompetent, uh, articulate incompetence, you know, if if I have credibility, I hope it comes from the fact that people really believe that I believe what I'm saying. And 
and that uh, that carries the uh, that carries the day. And sure, some of the experience helps get you in the door sometimes. But I'm telling you, there's so many new faces sitting around the table that I don't think would-be uh, entrepreneurs who are out there trying to think about money should be intimidated by the fact that they maybe don't have that same tenure, don't have that same track record. Show people where you're going, how you're going to get there, that you're thinking logically about things, that you have contingency plans, and then just understand the process is going to take some time because nobody's going to write you a check that first uh, day they meet you. They're going to watch you. They're going to see how you react to the audibles you call when things change, when you come back to them and say, I told you this was going to happen. It happened. And so I wouldn't wouldn't sit there and think, God, we've got to go find a gray hair who really can open doors for us. You've just got to go in and earn your place at that table every day by the story you tell and then be willing to go back. And when you've missed stuff, uh, tell them why, what you've done to, uh, to accommodate uh, for that. And you know, those were lessons I learned a long time ago as an analyst uh, is that the best way to gauge what a company can do is to hear the story and then hear it again and find out what changed and what they did about it. You heard it here first, everyone listening in. This is Dan LeMaitre, Chairman and CEO of Blue Wind Medical. Thank you so much for your time today this legendary experience that you've shared through over your career. Um, obviously, all the lives that you've changed, whether it's in the cardiovascular space, the lives that you changed through clinical and will change in overactive bladder. Thank you for your service, obviously, in the medical device industry. I love the story. Thank you for teaching us about Utah as well and just simply telling us your story. So once again, thank you for your time. This is the MedTech Money podcast series where we demystify raising and investing capital in MedTech. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Giovanni. Very happy to be part of this. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.